All opinions and views expressed on this podcast do not reflect official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the United States government. Welcome back, Engagers. The floor is yours. So I'll give you another example. This was in Afghanistan, too, and I go to visit this combat outpost. And, you know, I would just do leadership by walking around, by wandering around. So, you know, I would show up, helicopter would land. I'd get off the helicopter, and um, I'd walk by and look at a machine gun position. And if and if I saw rust on the machine gun or, or it was built up with dirt, I knew there was a lack of maintenance going on there, okay? And then I would look at the troops themselves, you know. We had this with the Army, you know, this direct ordering system to replace uniforms and boots and stuff like that. And if I saw troops running around in unserviceable uniforms and boots, I'm like, okay, we're not taking care of this repair and replace program that we have going on. But it was the attitude. So when I would show up and I would in this unit specifically – the commander and the senior enlisted leader are briefing me on a map on what they thought they were doing. And all they did was confuse the hell out of me because none of what they were saying was making sense. And at a certain point I said, well, where do you think? Uh, Do you have the uh, enemy neutralized, uh, disrupted? What do you think? Yeah, I think we got them neutralized, you know, and about that time, an enemy PKM machine gun opens fire about 200 meters outside the wire. Wow. And we're all running for cover underneath the table in this uh, tactical operations center. And as I'm under there with that commander and uh, they're reacting to this contact, I'm asking the commander, tell me again how you got the enemy (laughs) neutralized here. And then as I talk to the troops, you know, I talked to one of these troops and he's got these boots that, you know, there's rips in them and everything. And, so I asked the first sergeant, I said, why is this guy running around with unserviceable boots? He's going to get out here. He's going to get sand in him. He's going to get mud, open sewer system stuff. I mean, he's, it's just going to tear his feet up. And he says to me, well, Sergeant Major, that's his lucky boots. So what do you mean those are his lucky boots? He said, he's been, we've been shot at 17 times here with rockets and missiles, and he hasn't been wounded. So those are his lucky boots. And I thought to myself, I was like Fred Sanford. This is the big one, Elizabeth. I'm coming to join you, honey. All right? I said, you mean to tell me that you have created a standard in your organization that running around with unserviceable equipment is okay if it has personal meaning to the troop? We're not looking for effectiveness here. He wants, he feels good about himself. And I'm like, why are you glorifying how many times you get attacked? I said, what have you done to the enemy out here? Blank. Nothing. So... They were glorying in the fact that they were getting attacked, you know. And why were they getting attacked? Because they weren't taking the fight to the enemy, and the enemy was right outside the wire, hence the machine gun 200 meters outside the wire going off. And, oh, by the way, morale was going like this. The burnout was going like this. And because they weren't taking the fight to the enemy, the troops are like, why are we out here? We're just waiting around to get shot at or blown up and everything, you know. And so it was burnout and bore out. But it was because of these leaders that were, we're just trying to make it through this deployment. Instead of saying, the best way for us to all come home alive is to take the fight to the enemy and kill them before they kill us, all right? right. Kind of the, the, the reason that we serve in the military. And so 
at that point in time, I went to the higher headquarters. I said, look, you got to go down there and get a handle on that leadership down there or replace them and get people in there that can fire that organization up. Now, contrast that. I go to another combat outpost, and all I'm being told, first of all, I go in there, security's up, weapons systems are, are good. They have functioning uh, internet cafe that the troops are using and everything. And I see all this goodness going on, and the first sergeant keeps talking about, along with the commander, how they're getting after the enemy and how they're doing these, um, you know, positional ambushes and raids and stuff like that. And I said, well, how many fights have you guys been in? Because the, on the outside, it looks like, you know, they, they have a lot of things going. He says, oh, every day. We're in a fight every day. But the attitude was, we're going to take the fight to the enemy. And the morale was up. And oh, by the way, the fighter management was at a level that when you came in off patrol, you cleaned your weapons, you went and got chow, and then you went and decompressed at the internet cafe or you got sleep or whatever it was. And it was two like organizations, but with two leaders that got it over here and two that had succumbed to, we're just trying to get through today and then we're worried about tomorrow. And that kind of leadership is deadly. Well, this over here is pretty effective in a pretty dangerous situation. So I think that's how we got to continue. And it's a leader being cognizant of when things might be going wrong and how do they write that shit. Yeah. Um, it ties into quite a few things that we've also already talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, as far as, uh, you know, there's the, the compa- balancing the compassion and, and, and the uh, discipline. And discipline yeah. right? And there's a time and place to be where it's – your home station, your training, whatever it is, before you go, that's the time to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding about good luck charms or whatever the hell it is uh, versus when you're in combat and in the mission. You know, that's – if you've established that good balance between compassion and discipline, well, you don't really have to be as much compassionate because you've already earned that trust and that respect and and and, uh, and things of those natures when you're downrange. So well, and the um, persistence yeah, is necessary because the deployment will carry on. Correct. And complacency can easily set in. So the leader has to be persistent in maintaining that balance. Right. When leaders give up that persistence, like in this case where of the lucky boots guys, then the organization is going to fall back on. Yay, we got shot at again. Yeah, you know, and that's that was the other thing. The minute right, this the machine gun opened there. up. People were, like, celebrating that they were getting attacked. And I had to say, you know, in the Skid Row bars of Davenport, Iowa, where I come from, you don't get free beer for how many times the enemy kicks your ass. If You get free beer for how many times you kick their ass. Excuse my language, you know. But the point being is, you know, a winning championship mentality, you know, and, and championing even the bad things that are going on instead of being a victim to bad things that are going on. Uh, a leader that is more of a champion than a victim will have an organization that will do the right things when necessary. But the one, the leaders that practice victimism, they're going to have an organization that is one, not going to be combat effective, but two, it gets back to this burnout and bore out, you know, and more times than not, it's, it's the bore out because of the burnout. So with that, I kind of, I was, I was curious because uh, a lot of our audience members, uh, they're not just the leaders. They're also members at, sure. at my rank and, and, and below. So 
uh, you're a I'll leader, pull? aren't you? Yes, yes, yes. yes. You're a tech sergeant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I have. I have people you better that be a leader. Um, <laughs> all right. Most of these guys actually know me here, and and I've, yeah. I've talked to some of them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But but the reason why I'm asking this question is is um, obviously like in the military, no matter who you are, even at the rank of of, of CAC when you're holding that position, you have a boss, right? Like absolutely. Like you, you, Everybody's it, got everyone. It, like even from the four star, um, they have a boss. Uh, so sometimes when you're when you're facing these stuff like what can a member especially for our lower ranking members do when they're facing burnout and bore out like what is something that they can do at that subordinate level um that they can do especially with the organizational climate yeah it's a great question you know because if leaders aren't cognizant to that and the subordinates are it normally takes you know the junior enlisted are it normally takes a catastrophic event for, you know, that to come to bear and, and get outside intervention and everything. You know, when I came back from Afghanistan or when I got took over as the first corps, Army First Corps Command Sergeant Major, it was the fallout of uh, the kill teams in Afghanistan. And if you remember them, they were the ones that were – uh, going out and killing innocent Afghans and planting weapons on them and everything. And you even had a non-commissioned officer there that was doing things like cutting off ears of these Afghan victims and everything and keeping them, you know. And when I look at this organization, it started with the commander who had an attitude of this 06-level organization that was, we're going to Afghanistan to kill the enemy. And we are doing counter-guerrilla operations, not counter-insurgency. Counter-insurgency meaning that we are going to protect the center of gravity, the population. We're going to make life better for them. We're going to use all avenues, not just killing the enemy, but building infrastructure, you know, getting after agriculture, getting after education, all the other things associated with uh, nation-building. And everything, but in this commander's eyes, we are there just to get after the bad people, and that kind of attitude permeated through the organization. And all of a sudden, you had people going out just randomly shooting at cars driving down the road that weren't committing any hostile act or anything. And then, because of the lack of leader engagement, the imbalance between compassion and discipline that got after burnout and bore out, all of a sudden, you have these you know, random, radical NCOs going out and coming back empty on ammunition from a patrol without any significant activity. And then it spilled over to everybody's an insurgent and we're going to just start killing everybody. And this is what happens when we take our profession and we turn it personal. Don't get me wrong. When Brandon Craig got killed in action on the 19th of July, 2007, I was very upset because I was right there and, uh, um, and saw him die, you know. But I understood that the enemy gets a vote. And they weren't out looking for Brandon Craig. They were looking for a target to hit. So I knew that the next day when we went out, that all of the men and women I had on my team was looking to get revenge or payback, you know. But I had to make sure that they understood that, hey, the enemy got us today. Okay. You know, it was a month earlier when we killed 20 insurgents. We got the enemy that day. And we have to understand that this is a profession, and it's not personal. And every one of those folks that you see that are doing time in, in uh, 
uh, Leavenworth right now or other military prisons for that kind of atrocities, they had taken our profession and made it personal. And when we do that, we're no longer the first and foremost greatest military in the world. We are now that ugly American that people will want to steer away from. So I think the bottom line in all of this is the more leaders stay engaged, and it's tough, especially over 15 months and when bad things happen. You know, when you make eight trips to the morgue in seven days that my commander and I had to make, that has, a, that has an effect on you. And it certainly has an effect on the men and women that are around those people when they were killed in action. But keeping it as, a, as the profession is what we're here to do. And the more we do that and the more we recognize uh, that things could go wrong and we are cognizant of that burnout and bore out, we'll get beyond this. We'll, we'll be able to combat complacency and anything else and we'll continue to be successful, and in the end, we'll be a better organization for it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, Th there's so many different perspectives that oh, yeah. most of us in this room ha haven't even fathomed. To well, to think, think of this about organization it. I was talking about. Right. Here's the indicators that they got burnout going on. One thousand over the course of a year deployment. One thousand late evaluations, EPRs. Right. Or officer evaluation, yeah, 1,000 in a 4,000 service member organization, over 1,000 late combat awards. No awards were put in for any kind of valorous activity that they were doing or anything. The administrative things, the foundational things that make an organization great, they had just dismissed. We're not here for this. We're here for counter-guerrilla warfare. Grooming standards. All of a sudden, the wearing of Manchu mustache and beards were authorized, even though this was a general purpose organization that had no special operations. All of a sudden, the commander on down was able to wear, you know, something that was unauthorized. Right. The ability to replace things on their uniform for personal, as you talked about, lucky charms and all this stuff. Right. You know, some of it that was, uh, you know, some pretty immoral kind of things that were being said on these tabs or, or decorations that they were putting on their uniform, you know? And so I think when you go away from that kind of stuff, the foundation, the basics like that, then the sky is the limit for bad behavior in the organization. And then if you're running people in the ground and you're not giving them a mission that they can be focused on, it just exacerbates it. And so when people say we never saw this coming, that they were going to kill innocent Afghans was well, because we weren't looking or we never saw that the organization was that burned out and bored out that all of a sudden a squad's going to go and rape a 13 year old Iraqi girl and burn her body and that and kill and murder their family, her family as well. When people say we never saw it's because we aren't looking. Leaders aren't going in with an eye to say, I'm coming in here to see the effectiveness of this organization because too many times we got leaders that want to come down because of how bad combat can be and want to, hey, I know things are bad and everything, but we got to remember that this is our profession. And if we don't fix things when they're wrong, then we've changed the standard. You know, that kind of reminds me of, uh, of a study that, that occurred about like how people make leadership decisions. And this study was actually kind of pretty cool. So it, it's called the three bucket test. And, yeah. and what they did is, uh, so you're familiar with it. So what they did is uh, they, they took a, a bucket of freezing cold ice water, right? 
and they had this bucket and it was like really really close to to like basically crystals were forming and they had someone stick their hand in in, in the water and the re- and the researchers asked them a, a, a simple questions and the, one of the main questions was hey based how how painful do you think it will be to live in in antarctica and with this bucket of ice cold water in on their hand well pretty much all of them uh, agreed it would be very painful then they did the same same scenario with, with a totally different group of uh, participants and they asked them Hey, and they put them in in a warm bucket of water, and they asked them, "Hey, how cold or how painful would it be if you did the same if if you uh, lived in 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 Antarctica?" And a lot of them, with their hand in the warm bucket of water, answered that no, it wouldn't be painful at all, that that they'll be able to handle it. And then they did something pretty interesting. So with with another group of uh, participants, they put their hand in the ice cold bucket of water, then they had them take it out, waited a couple minutes. And then they put their hand in that warm bucket of water, and then they asked them the same question. Well, to their surprise, the participants literally forgot about the pain that they were experiencing during during the time when their hand was in that cold bucket of water. And they said, hey, it won't be that bad because now their hand was in the warm bucket of water. So if you are a leader and you're going out and you're seeing the troops and you're going to make a decision, say, for example, you're going out and seeing the workplace and you're going to make a decision about the workplace – it'd probably be best for you to make that decision while you're at that workplace because right. now you're experiencing it firsthand and you're not going back to the to the nice fancy office and so on like that that, that a lot of us <laughs> I got a good yeah. example for that too <laughs> so here I am a uh, platoon sergeant in uh, you know it's Fort Bragg North Carolina it is hot as all get up in the middle of July and we and do humid. a jump in humid <laughs> yeah and we do a jump on Sicily drop zone and uh you know, we're, we're going to walk back. So, you know, we're going to walk 15 miles back to the unit area in the middle. That's a long walk with all your gear. With all your combat gear and everything. And as we're moving along and moving out, and this first sergeant, and I won't mention his name, um, one of my senior mentors that, that I still use today replaced him, a guy named Roger Blackwood. But the guy before Roger pulls up in a van. And I'm, I'm, I wore, wore glasses at the time, and we are sweating our butts off, and we are, you know, running out of water and everything. He pulls up in this van, and he rolls down the window. The window comes down, and it was so cold from the air conditioner in there that my glasses fogged up. And he tells me, hey, you need to get these guys spread out a little bit. They're too close together. You know, in combat, somebody would catch a bullet. And I thought to myself, okay, the only thing, we're out here walking back you know and we talk about leader performing this guy pulls up in a van with the ac on full blast rolls it down and it is so cold that my glasses fog up and he's going to tell me something stupid like that (laughs) you talk about wanting to put an ass whooping on a first sergeant right there you know (laughs) but my point and all is that was what you were getting at right there you know is leaders will expect you to do something but they do a lot of talking and not doing, and they ain't about to. He wasn't about to get out of that air-conditioned van to come and tell me that we were screwed up, you know. And that his advice didn't go very far either, because I was not going to go and turn around and echo that to the troops that were dying at that point in time because of the heat and the weight and all the other things. So. Yeah, it goes through like virtual signaling as well too. Like so, absolutely. One of the one of. Hey, the can we take a break right oh, quick so I can hit the head? Yes, yes, sir. All right. Thank you for that insight, John. That that was that was spectacular. As you can see, we've got we've got a room full of of audience members. Another first for uh, for engaged. Uh, 
um, I'm gonna we're gonna pass the mic around to whoever wants to ask any questions to John, uh, any personal insight they would want to, or perspectives that they would like to share from their own personal lives as well. Uh, nothing's off the table here. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Sergeant Padilla. I'm in the 61 CRS. Um, being an NCO, so when it comes to, I guess, the mid-tier level uh, management portion, how can you, it's more of a question really, how, what do you think, what are your thoughts behind being able to tell your upper supervision, upper level NCOs, when it comes to something that you see in a leader that maybe should it, should be corrected or should be adjusted in a sense that you can po maybe potentially bring up to your leaders, especially being an NCO, having to speak up to uh, a senior NCO, uh, necessarily uh, nothing bad, but having that courage to be able to do that. Yeah. What what are your what's your insights on that? So there's an art to that as well, and uh, you know tact you've always if you're gonna go and tell somebody that outranks you that you're not happy with something or we need to you know work on something first and foremost you got to be tactful in your approach and then i would try to make it you know that i i was understanding up front that i was the subordinate and they were the superior so i would say something like this i would say boss uh like to have a word with you if you don't mind you know, and even if it was something not, it's nothing big, but if you don't mind, I'd love to just have a one-on-one -on -one with you and have a seat. But I always say something like that, boss. So they understood that, I understood that they were my superior, you know, so that we didn't get off on the wrong foot right away of this person is challenging my authority kind of stuff. So I always want, but I wanted it to be subtle enough that they could hear it, but understanding that what I'm going to tell them is maybe something they didn't expect to hear, you know, because especially if it's something personal in their behavior or their performance that I think we ought to get after, you know, and I, and I will tell you <clears throat> after, you know, 19 July, when my patrol got attacked, my boss uh, took it really hard when we lost Brandon Craig. And, uh, you know, he, uh, all of a sudden he, he put a lot of the blame on himself when in the end, you know, the enemy just got the best of us that day. We were prepared. We rehearsed. We, ex you know, we did execute, executed our mission the way we had done it hundreds of times before. And the enemy just got us that day. And I could tell that all of a sudden he was going to be a little bit risk averse. And when you start doing things like that, you, you can start giving competitive advantage away to your enemy. So I went in and talked to him. I said, hey, boss, I need to talk to you. And uh, he's an 06, and I'm an E9, you know. And I said, hey, look, I understand that, you know, that you're taking this pretty hard. But, hey, they, they got us today. What do you want us to say, you know? You want me to say that if we go on patrol, it's not going to happen tomorrow? No, I can't say that. But the bottom line is if we all of a sudden become risk-averse and pull back, then we lose. And we also – are scarring the memory of the soldier that we lost in action. So I think there's got to be always be tact associated with it. But also any subtle reminder you can give to understand that you're not challenging authority, you're a challenging the behavior or the practice that might be going on. 
goes a long way with having those kinds of conversations. Because sometimes people, you know, will come at it in an untactful way, and whatever the argument is is gone. Because now the leader is going to take offense that they are challenging their authority, and now that has become the issue. So I think any kind of, and that's why that's an art too, you know. The art of influence is, you know, you know, doing the right thing. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't the best guy at it because when I was that young, confident, borderline cocky E5 or E6, sometimes I would just approach it the wrong way. And when that leader would start knife edging me and everything, I would say, well, do you want me to go ahead and get a parade rest? Will that make this conversation better and me shut up? So I was <laughs> I was causing more problems <laughs> than I was. And we had already forgotten about what I was coming to talk to him about. And those are one of the lessons learned that I learned. And so I think it's the art. If you want to tell someone that is higher ranking than you or has more responsibility than you that something is going wrong or they're doing something wrong, there's got to be that art and that tact associated with it to stay on the subject that you're talking about. And it's business. It's not personal. You're just trying to get better as an organization. And, uh, and don't make it out where it's perceived to be a personal attack. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Uh, anybody else have questions? Heard our last one, Influence the Power of Persuasion. That's a great book to read on, on how to influence your boss, how to influence people around you um, as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a really long book, but it, I think it'll, it'll help you out with, with, uh, with that trait that you keep talking about with influence. Let's hear from one of these defenders back here. Oh, John's, John's going to interview you guys. No, none of these – nobody goes home until one of them asks a question, all right? <laughs> So I believe that's what happened earlier. We were we were falling short on questions, and you started interviewing the audience. That's right. <laughs> All right, sir. Uh, my name is Aaron Perez. Just a quick question. I'd say you've had a lot of experience, leadership roles, um, enlisted roles, just regular roles. You know, um, you've been in many places, met a lot of different people. What's what's kind of been your driving point in like staying in? Because I know you've had a very you know like long career what was your favorite aspect would you say looking back now like glad that that happened are you talking about the background noise yeah, yeah. okay um, okay so uh sorry give me give me one second john So initially, when I joined, I was going to do four years and I was going to get out. Um, <laughs> the worst thing that can happen to somebody when they get to their first duty station, um, I showed up on the 5th of January, 1983. And on the 1st of February, 1983, I met this young lady named Sandra Jimenez. <laughs> and uh, we fell in love with each other. And six months later, she was pregnant. And seven months later, we got married. So my priorities changed. I wasn't doing things on individual responsibility or individual focus. Now I had a wife and I had an unborn son that I had to look after. And I knew the military did a good job of taking care of families. So I, I knew then that I had to stay in to best because I didn't know how to do anything else. In high school, I was a pretty good football player and wrestler during the season. But outside of that, I was best at chasing girls and drinking beer, you know, and, and I didn't have a lot of skills and everything. So 
I told myself if I'm going to stay in, the best way I can take care of my family is by being the best soldier I could be, the best service member I could be, and striving for excellence in everything I did because the faster the promotions came, the more I could take care of my family financially. And that was kind of my driving force. But then as I got, you know, at about the E4, E5 level, things were coming pretty easy for me. And uh, I was kind of like Stambo over here, you know. I was striving for excellence in everything I did, and I knew I needed challenges. So I said, all right, I want to be a paratrooper, and I went to airborne school. I want to be a ranger. I went to ranger school. I want to be a jump master. I want to be a pathfinder. I want to get a college education. All these things I kept going after. And so it was kind of a parallel path. I was taking care of my family, but I was also – in a career that I love now, and and I, I knew I had not missed my calling doing this. Now, did I think I was going to go on to be the SEAC? Absolutely not, you know. Yeah, but I just knew that if I kept applying myself and and trying to be that in that band of excellence, that good things were going to happen to me. And I will tell you, the, the most satisfying thing for me was uh, doing things that not a lot of people did. So – Ranger school, graduation rate of 24%. So one out of every four graduate, three don't graduate. And me not being an infantryman, but being a reconnaissance guy, when I stood on that field and a ranger tab was pinned on me, I knew I had accomplished something that only 10% of my career field had ever done. And those kinds of moments were, you know, prideful for me. But it also propelled me, okay, what's next? What do I want to do next? What do I want to do to challenge myself next? So I think initially my career started off as uh, it was all about me. But the minute, you know, I inherited a wife and then a child and then two more children afterwards, I knew it was about my family. And in order to best take care of my family, I had to be the best soldier that I could be. And it all just kind of worked out on this parallel path. Um, to where, you know, I culminated as the SEAC. Amazing. Great. Thank you. Any other questions from around the room? Come on. Yeah. Go ahead, sir. Senior? The Senior Master Sergeant Kern from the 61 CRS. John? Um, can you talk a little bit about the power of first courage? And by that I mean, um, say, somebody who's been sexually assaulted, they have that courage to be the one that says, hey, this happened to me. And then because of that individual, others come out and say, yes, he or she did that to me too. Um, it doesn't have to be in that realm. It doesn't have to be necessarily DNI related, but I'm being a DNI podcast. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's absolutely important, but I, I think more so than, I mean, obviously recognizing first courage, you know, when someone that has had something bad happen to them and, and something that is traumatic as a sexual assault or something like that, the personal courage it takes to come out on that, that has to be recognized, okay? But I think we have to set conditions that, it, it, is, it normalizes that courage to come out and do those kinds of things. And that's what I think leaders have to do because there is still a stigma about reporting sexual assault, sexual harassment, or racism, or extremism, or any of these other corrosives 
in our military. And I think how we get after that is having, having open discussions about that on any given day. And as far as a leader, it's not changing your leadership approach because someone might be a different gender or someone might be a different race or whatever, that you are transparent and you are genuine in how you do everything. So I think uh, when it comes to first courage, we have to recognize that and to the point of that we are celebrating that this person came out. But more importantly, let's set the conditions so that that courage, that personal courage it takes to report something like that is a norm and not an anomaly. John, I, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, Absolutely. I uh, say so we're going to go to the part of the show where I let you get to talk whatever you want about you as, uh, you know, as long as I say it's okay and I don't delete it later. Just kidding. It's not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> uh, now, this is your personal time. We really appreciate you uh, taking the time out of, out of your personal life and sharing stories, your perception. Uh, you know, everyone has their own perception in the ways that they view life, their life and everything. And uh, we all have our own unique views. It's absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely amazing perception, a, a different view than we've, than we've heard from so far. So I just wanted to offer you the time to talk about anything going on in your personal life or any personal projects, anything of that nature that you wanted to talk to before we sign off for the day. So, you know, I retired and, uh, you know, I didn't, I wanted to be that retiree that was an enabler that can give back to the current men and women uniform, like what I'm doing today. I didn't want to be that agitator, you know, that would, you know, call up the base chief and ask or complain that, you know, subways charging more for chow on base than they are off base or <laughs> something like that. Right. Don't get me wrong. Stuff like that is important. Okay. I also didn't want to be that guy lost in his museum where I'm chasing an airman. I've got a retiree ID card and I'm chasing an airman down at the gas station because they don't have their headgear on. Right. Okay. Because the right airman or soldier will figure out that that re retiree ID card doesn't mean anything. And it could cause you to either get your butt kicked or, or someone to tell you where you can go and everything. So I didn't want to be that person that was focused in the past. I, I didn't want to be lost in my museum and run around and, you know, hey, you know, I was the third SEAC and, or, you know, tell the defender coming through the gate, you're supposed to address me as Sergeant Major or SEAC or whatever. I didn't want to be that person. And also, I didn't want to be someone that just went from one grind to the next, going from active duty for almost 38 years and then going into a job that was 12 hours a day, five days a week in an office, in a grind or whatever. And so I wanted to do my own thing. And I got some great advice from a mentor of mine. And I just started my own consulting company. And, you know, my consult, my consulting focuses on leadership uh, and human performance. And all of a sudden I signed nine different contracts with companies uh, all the way from uh, veteran support organizations to military support organizations to fitness organizations to nutrition organizations and then I uh, I started my own nonprofit called eTool Nation and if you want to know what why I call it eTool Nation just google Troxel and entrenching tool and you'll see all about it you know a couple of years ago I called out ISIS and and told them that uh, they had two options they could surrender or die and if they surrendered we'd treat them humanely but if they, they didn't, then we were going to kill them, whether that was dropping bombs on them, shooting them in the face, or if need be, beating them to death with our shovels. So that kind of got me in a little bit of trouble with yeah. certain people in Washington, D.C. But in terms of inspiring the troops, it went a long way. And so now 
I've turned this into my apparel and gear line and every penny that I get in from an eTool Nation shirt or a signed eTool or anything goes to an, you know, to charity. And whether that's the, you know, Lighthouse for the Blind, I've donated money to others that assist service members and veterans with PTSD. All of that um, is, uh, I don't make a dime off any of that. It all goes to charity. So those are the things I do, but also um, opportunities are coming for me here, you know, and I've got a big opportunity potential in the uh, um, television industry, and we'll see where it goes. I guess my message is, um, regardless of what you want to do out there, whether you're in the military or you're going to separate or whatever, is four things I recommend. Dream big in everything you do. You know, uh, Perez asked me that question about, and uh, my, my dream was to be able to take care of my family and live comfortably, but also continue to excel. And uh, that meant I had to put the grind in every day and focus on what I was doing now. And as long as I focused on what I was doing now, tomorrow would take care of itself. So dream big. I would set lofty but attainable goals, you know. And I don't know how many times in my career if I said, hey, I want to be a ranger. Well, you can't do that. Only infantrymen can do that. I wouldn't settle for that answer. I would go to the right person that could tell me yes, and then I would go and execute that, you know. Um, but they had, these goals had to be attainable, you know. I had to have it within me, my capability, my finances, whatever it was to be able to get after that. Right. And I constantly practice the art of visualization. You know, I visualize where I'm at, where I want to go, and how I want to get there. And I share that with my wife. And in, you know, my PME hard business, my consulting business, my son is my chief of operations, and I'm constantly consulting them if we're going the right direction. And uh, once I've done all of that, and I visualize, all I got to do is go make it happen, actualize it. And I think the vast majority of that work is up front. You know, it's like today, you heard me ask that airman what his goals were. Right. And what did he say? I, I mean, I don't have paraphrase. Any, he's trying to figure his life out. Still. He still like hasn't. I mean, the guy's been in the Air Force five years, and he's on his second enlistment, and he doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Okay. So there, to me, you know, there's one guy that needs to, you know, dream big. He needs to set some lofty, attainable goals. But there needs to be a leader involved that will get that guy to visualize and actualize what he needs to do and everything. So that's what I've kind of focused on, and I continue to do it in retired life. I originally said I was going to be on a five-year plan, and after five years, Sandra and I are we're going to get an RV and just travel the country. <laughs> but so many opportunities have come my way that I don't know that in five years I'm going to be done. And certainly when it comes to doing things like this um, – as long as I keep getting invited back, I'll keep doing them, you know. And so that's kind of what I'm doing now. So my message out there is uh, know your worth, you know, know when your welcome has been worn out. And you'll know that, especially when you're a retired senior enlisted guy, when the phone stops ringing, you know, and then know when to say I'm done. And, and that's a family uh, decision as well. So that's my message out there. And to the men and women, not only of the 621, but uh, here at uh, JBMDL and uh, across the Air Force and across the Joint Force, thank you for your service. Thanks for what you do. And I love saying this now that I'm retired. 
Thank you for defending my freedom and that of 330 million other Americans out here. You are the world's best. God bless you all. Boom. Cool. Thank you so much, sir. A couple of thank yous real quick before we sign off completely. Thank you, Senior Master Sergeant Kern, Jeremiah Kern from the 621 CRS for assisting with setting up today's stuff. Thank you, Master Sergeant Willie Baker for your continued support and assistance. Thank you, Staff Sergeant Dayon Lane for stepping in while Tech Sergeant Trinidad is, is doing the mission in other places. And most importantly, thank you, audience, for our first test run with an audience. Appreciate your time and, and energy and, and, and sitting down and listening and, and interacting with the show today. Stay tuned, Engagers. That's right. We'll see you next time, humans. Bye. If you like that episode, please like and subscribe. Also, follow us on Facebook. If you wish to make contact with the JBMDL Diversity and Inclusion Working Group, please email 87abw.cvb.diversityinclusion at us.af.mil.